Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. We're taking a break this week from our multi-part series with Seaboard Foods, but we'll be back next week with our final episode. Our guest this week is Dr. Robert Wample, Director of Science and Technology for Landscan, a company developing intelligent site characterization and analysis technology for applications in the agricultural sector. Dr. Wample is a plant physiologist by trade with 20 plus years of experience in plant-related science and soil variability. Growing up on a farm, coupled with an early death in the family, Bob found himself the oldest boy in the family at nine years old and began farming with his father. One of the themes throughout this interview was that Bob learned something during those early years which has really stuck with him. And it was to try to do something right the first time. And sometimes having more information can help you do it right the first time. This lesson is carried forward with him into the Marines through an impressive career in plant science and research, and finally now to his time at Landscan. In this episode, Bob weaves together a story of how his military service in places like Nepal and Africa influenced his early academic career while trying to simultaneously navigate a transition into the private sector during the beginnings of the Vietnam War. The impressive things Landscan is doing now through providing growers and crop advisors with much more and better information about soil variability in an effort to improve crop performance is all rooted in the idea that having more information early can help you do the right things the first time. Enjoy. I grew up a, on a farm, a small farm in Delaware. Um, and it was a, about a 150 acre farm. And uh, because of a death in the family, I became the oldest boy at about nine years old and began farming with my father. And it was one of those things that uh, was just an accepted thing that you needed to do at the time. So I became a farm boy pretty early and, and became responsible for a lot of things that most nine-year-olds don't think about. And as a consequence of that, I became... Um, accustomed to uh, working and and my father tried to teach me to try and do it right the first time uh, rather than having to do it again later on at uh, greater expense and so that's one of the things that I think I've probably carried with me for the rest of my life is that um, work is not a problem and do it right the first time if you can and doing it right the first time, I learned uh, over the many, many years that I've had uh, that having information, uh, more information about the problem or this, whatever it is that you're trying to do allows you to do it more correctly the first time. We don't always get it perfect, but hopefully we don't make really big mistakes. Uh, and, and so that's been a driving force for the way I've tried to conduct myself uh, since that time. Uh, my father eventually sold the farm 
and I went back to work on a farm down the road and used to work summertime uh, with them uh, doing everything from cultivating corn to baling hay and milking 150 head of cows, which at that time was a big herd. Mm-hmm. So I got, to, I got to learn a lot of different things about farming and that's kind of where my roots are. And that's why I came back to an opportunity with Landscan and previous to that, uh, other companies. And, and my academic work was associated with agricultural applications. Yeah, for sure. I've seen that. And I, I want to kind of get into that part of it. You mentioned something um, with respect to, to doing it right the first time and how more information tends to lead to better decisions. It's always been a struggle point for me early in my military career of trying to have the most amount of information before making a decision, if you will, and how in the military, that's not always the situation that you can put yourself in. Sometimes a 70% solution now is better than a 90% solution down the road. Uh, so I'm curious as to if there was something, you know, perhaps a practical example or a particular experience from your early childhood where you really took to heart this idea of doing something right the first time and how having more information allowed you to make a better decision. Wow. Um, I don't know that there was any one particular incident. Uh, it was it, growing up on a farm, there's a, a constant series of decision processes almost every day. Uh, and so that I learned from my father to try and as quickly as you can and as effectively as you can evaluate the situation and try to make a good decision. Um, again, as, as a child, I, I didn't have a lot of background to work from. Mm-hmm. So I made some mistakes and my father helped me uh, appreciate those mistakes <laughs> in, in different ways at times. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so that um, I, I, I don't think that I can attribute it to any one particular incident. It was a continuous learning process with, with being on the farm. How, how did the interest in military service come to pass, Bob? Was your father in there? How did that um, part of your life start to build? Um, wow. It, I had a, a much older brother. Uh, I, I come from a large family. Um, there were 11 children altogether. Uh, but I had an older brother who served at the end of the World War II and uh, into the Korean conflict. And I sort of resonated with what he had done. Um, And I graduated from high school. I had an adequate GPA to get me into college, but my family couldn't afford it. So the option was do something different. And I looked at the military as as a way to, um, I suppose, get out of the house is one thing. Um, and that's what teenagers do, want to get out of the house. And, and it was a way that I could do it without putting any more strain on my family. And it was 
also a part of you know developing that independent situation. And so uh, I, I volunteered and spent four years in the Marine Corps. And um, I, I have to say that I I learned a tremendous amount um, in, in a lot of different perspectives. Uh, discipline, um, the necessity to follow through on things. But I was also fortunate in that um, I had an opportunity that a very few Marines ever get, and that was to serve as a security guard mm. at American embassies. Mm. Uh, I was originally a, a weapons platoon MOS, uh, three, five rocket launchers, mortars, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but an opportunity came up for me to go to security guard school, and I took it. Uh, I spent 16 months in Kathmandu, Nepal, uh, moved from there to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where I spent 10 months. And uh, that was during the time when Vietnam was just getting started. Um, so I got out in 66. And the people that I had an opportunity to interact with both at the embassy, uh, my fellow Marines at these locations, as well as the population in these locations, um, broaden my appreciation for how the rest of the world lives. And uh, I developed a, a very strong appreciation for how well my situation was compared to a lot of people in the world. Um, as I said, I, I grew up on a small family farm, um, went in the Marine Corps, and all of a sudden one day I found myself on a Pan American jet leaving New York City, flying halfway around the world, um, landing in New Delhi, India, getting a transfer flight to Kathmandu, Nepal. And when I landed on the ground in Kathmandu, Nepal, it was like going back 500 years. Um, and as I spent my time in Nepal, got to know many of the local people. Um, I developed an incredible appreciation for their resilience and ability to survive under the conditions that they had. And one of the things that struck me uh, and led to my going to college was uh, there, there were no gasoline lines, uh, no natural gas lines feeding homes so they could heat their water or cook their meals. Uh, they didn't even have coal. Uh, so they depended upon wood as a source of fire if they could get it. and the deforestation that was taking place was serious. It was causing erosion. And so I decided that one of the things I would be interested in getting into forestry and ended up uh, originally enrolling at the University of Idaho in the College of Forestry. And at the same time, I was working for the US Forest Service on a program for discovering resistance to the blister rust, which was a primary disease in Western, <clears throat> Western white pine. And that um, 
project uh, involved genetics, uh, science, and climbing trees to 100 feet up to collect the cones and doing some things. Um, and the craziest thing that happened was that towards the end of my academic time at the University of Idaho, the leader of that research project with the US Forest Service really began to discover that the progress that he had made was not much different than what was happening in the natural environment. And the reason for that was that in fact, uh, conifers don't become sexually reproductive until they are 10 to 15 years old. Consequently, he could not carry out his F2, F3 generation breeding programs for 15 years. There was a publication in the journal Science that I became aware of by a researcher whose name was Dr. Richard Ferris, who discovered that by applying a plant growth regulator, plant hormone, to a sequoia seedling no more than a year old, he caused it to become sexually reproductive. And I thought, wow, had my research leader at the US Forest Service known about this he could have accelerated the progress that he made because he could have gotten things sexually reproductive so much more quickly. So I contacted Dr. Ferris and eventually was offered a research assistantship in his laboratory uh, at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. So I finished my bachelor's degree and went to Canada along with my wife at that point and uh, uh, a pregnant wife at that point. <laughs> starting our life um, and spent the next five years uh, working on my PhD at the University of Calgary, looking at hormonal regulation in plant systems. So I went from forestry to a plant physiology degree um, and have found it to be very rewarding. It's so interesting how the early experiences in our life, especially if they include military service, especially if that military service includes exposure to other parts of the world that as a 17 or 18 or 19 year old young person coming from a farm background or an agricultural background doesn't have previous experience to shapes a new path for us in a lot of ways. I can remember on my first deployment, I was also a Marine in the infantry in um, Djibouti eastern coast of Africa. We spent some time there doing some training and working with the French Foreign Legion. And I remember coming off the landing craft because we, we did a beach landing and coming off. And I remember thinking as we had started to set up different patrol bases for the first you know, week or so, I remember thinking that the landscape looks like what Mars must look like. I mean, it was <laughs> something that I had never seen before, even seen pictures of. I came from a small, you know, suburban background in San Antonio, Texas. And so it's certainly nothing <laughs> I had been exposed to before, but it was just those kinds of experiences place in your mind as a young person that the world is not always and 
it's not what you have. It's not always a summation of your previous experiences. Absolutely. And um, my opportunities both in Nepal and in uh, Africa, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. Ethiopia. Um, and I had, while I was in Africa, well, both while I was in Nepal, I had a chance to leave Kathmandu. Um, we were typically one man short at the embassy. So that meant we spent seven hours on, seven hours off. Uh, uh, sorry, eight hours on, eight hours off. And, and uh, it was rare that we had an opportunity where we could get two days in a row to not have any standing guard. <clears throat> and I had an opportunity to, to leave Kathmandu and drive down what was called, the, or what is called the Tripavan Rajpath. Um, and that is a, a road that goes from Kathmandu all the way down to India. Uh, and it's, a, it's an incredible drive because you're going through the foothills of the Andes, uh, not Andes, but the Himalayas, and, and, and all the way down into the, the almost the jungles of, of the Terai in India. Um, that exposure, again, taught me about the variety in a relatively short period of distance, you know, a, a day and a half drive um, that I had never experienced in my life before. And following that, going to Ethiopia, I had an opportunity uh, with the military flight, the military attache to go from Addis Ababa to Nairobi, Kenya, and out to Lake Kisumu in the middle of uh, Kenya. And to have an opportunity to see the wildlife, which of course was a, a, a huge opener, but also looking at the, um, the land mass, the vegetation, the variability, and trying to understand um, as best as I could at that point, because the lack of formal education limited me in terms of my ability to interpret things uh, as much as I could today. And so that, that experience still resonates in the sense that I, I became more aware of how much variability there can be and how that variability impacts uh, the lives of animals and people in those regions. And um, when I got out of the military and left Eastern United States for Moscow, Idaho, <laughs> it, it was a, 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 another significant change in climatic conditions and vegetation. Uh, and again, just another learning experience that, that came with um, moving around the world. What was that transition process like for you, Bob, leaving active duty service after a few years in all of these incredible places, but at the very early stages of the Vietnam conflict? Was that a difficult transition process? There was that difficult transition. First of all, um, as you well know, I'm sure, uh, being a part of the military, you you have a commitment to your country that uh, many people in the absence of, of military service, I don't 
honestly believe they can develop the same level of commitment to your country that um, you get when you're a, a member of the military service. It didn't necessarily make what was happening in Vietnam right, but we still had the commitment to our country. And it, it, you learn to, uh, as you know, follow orders. And, and the orders of the day were, this is what we're gonna do. And it made it very difficult, but I suppose I was fortunate in that um, during that time period from my getting out of the military, I was, uh, I was able to, to get together with similar veterans. And mm -hmm. so that we interacted with one another and I, my level of interaction with the I'll call it the typical 18 year old student was pretty minimized. And so th there were a number of other veterans that my wife and I were had the opportunity to interact with. And, and we developed some very good friendships, as you can imagine, from that time. Unfortunately, we've gotten very, very far apart. They went their direction, I went mine. And uh, we've had difficulty keeping track of one another. But uh, uh, that helped tremendously to have that mutual support. Um, but the focus on getting my academic degree and as I was um, learning to excel, to kind of get it, get it right the first time um, in my academic career, because I knew that if I wanted to go beyond what I had become aware of as in the College of Forestry, um, I, I had an interaction with the Dean of the College of Forestry and the Forestry program required that every forestry student spent a summer at what they called summer camp, where you learn to uh, cruise timber and scale logs. Mm. And my experience at the research center taught me that I really wasn't interested in cruising timber and scaling logs and being a forester <laughs> in the sense of wearing a, 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 a U.S. Forest Service uniform in, a, in the woods or something. And, that wasn't where I wanted to go. And I knew that the only way out was to get a, be competitive for graduate school. And so I worked hard. So you keep your head down, work hard. It, you, you lose track of some other things. And I suppose that was a good time for me to be able to do that. So if yeah. you could maybe connect the dots for us from how you got from plant physiology and that academic work into the work that you're doing now with Landscan. Uh, be glad to. Here's, here's the fun part. As I was uh, performing my duties as a scientist at Washington State University, uh, in, in the transition from my first position after graduate school, uh, which was in California State University at Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton, uh, I, I applied for a job at Washington State University in the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture and uh, was accepted. And the transition that my family and I made, we drove from California to Washington uh, in uh, December, uh, made a, a mid-year transition. During that trip, National Public Radio had a week-long series on water in the West. And 
the things that I learned, and I listened to that every afternoon as we were driving, the things that I learned and the, the insights that the people that they interviewed for that story, that, that series on water in the Western United States, so many of the things that they alluded to have now come to pass. They predicted the water conditions, the serious nature of water was going to play in Western agriculture. And I was joining an agricultural department, a horticulture and landscape architecture department, and water in Washington, east coast or eastern part of the state of Washington, beyond the rain, <clears throat> rain shadow of the Cascade Mountain, uh, made water a very critical issue. So what I discovered, of course, was that every field that I visited, other than fields that were less than an acre in size, so multi-acre fields up to hundreds of acres, every one of them showed variability in crop performance. I quickly recognized that the variability in the above ground atmosphere, climate, could not account for that variability. It's pretty obvious that the, it's the below ground variability that was controlling crop performance. And it was everything from the depth of that soil to the specific characteristics that changed nutrient and water availability, root distribution. Um, the problem was of course, that our ability to characterize those soils in a precise enough manner to make decisions that were economically viable just did not exist. And so I spent uh, about nine years uh, at the main campus of Washington State University of Pullman. And I spent a lot of time on the road out visiting growers and trying to gather as much insight as I could. Um, and then an opportunity came up for me to make a transition to the research center at uh, Prosser, Washington, the Irrigated Agriculture Research and Extension Center. I know, um, Prosser. The largest irrigated agriculture research extension center in the United States. We did the largest irrigation project of wine grapes, I think that's probably ever been done. Uh, not only did we do uh, irrigation management, but we also made wine, uh, 8,000 gallons of 16 different treatments. Wow. And those wines were ultimately um, evaluated chemically and they were evaluated by one of the world's top um, enologists. Um, and in a blind tasting of these 16 different wines, he was able to identify each treatment independently. It was revealing, but it was also still a question because even though we knew what we had done, uh, we still recognize that within the four acre blocks of each treatment that we had replicate, that we still had variability. And I knew the variability was caused by soils. Uh, we had um, somewhat overcome that variability within a, a research block simply because of the way we were managing um, water ir irrigation management. <clears throat> it was at the end of 
my career at Washington State University, where I then had applied for and been accepted as a director of the research center and the Department of Viticulture and Enology at California State University at Fresno. It was probably the, I think the, probably the fourth or fifth year uh, after, while I was there that I had um, began a project where we were again trying to evaluate variability in fields and could we identify a way to characterize quality in wine grape vineyards prior to harvest. And we were doing this by sampling fields, 10 samples per acre, and we had 40 acre fields. So if you do 10 samples per acre, that's 400 samples. And we were doing pre-harvest sampling and doing all the analysis on that fruit to determine um, using geolocated sample identity mm -hmm. where the quality zones were in each field. Mm -hmm. We converted that GIS information into a GIS map and we were collaborating with a mechanical harvesting company at the time who then used that GIS format to in fact do differential irrigation or differential harvest across the fields. Uh, the harvester was designed so that when we were harvesting, mechanically harvesting, driving down a row, what we called a quality fruit was delivered to a gondola on the right-hand side of the harvester. When we moved out of that zone in the same row into a C quality zone, the fruit was delivered to a gondola on the left side of the harvester. And we did this on 40 acre fields and that fruit was then delivered to a winery separately and made into wines. And we subsequently were able to um, show that the wines were in fact significantly different in quality characteristics. Hmm. So our mapping process had in fact done what we had expected it to. The interesting thing was that as we were developing this process, I had a a phone call one day from a young man whose name was Dan Rooney. Dan Rooney contacted me wanting to know if there was anything that I was doing where his technology might be able to, in fact, help me understand what was going on. And I said, I don't know anything about your technology. Tell me. He proceeded to describe to me um, what he was doing with a soil probe and um, methods that he was developing to, in fact, explore soil variability in a way that I had never even imagined in my wildest dreams could be done. He and I eventually met at the American Society of Enology and Viticulture meeting in San Diego. And he flew out from his Midwest location. He and I spent, I think, probably two hours in an in-depth discussion of what he was developing and able to do at the time. And it struck me as being um, a huge change in our approach to agricultural management if we could in fact understand soils at the level that he was describing. And his team eventually did multi-component analysis looking for soil characteristics that were potentially contributing to the variability in wine grape quality we discovered that there were four different soil properties out of approximately 64 different soil properties that we were looking at that were the four primary components associated with quality characteristics mm -hmm. across a wine grape vineyard. Mm -hmm. 
Um, astonishing. And the fact that one of the vineyards was located just north of Fresno, one of them was all the way up in Lodi. Totally different soil zones, but the four different soil characteristics that we identified were consistent in both locations. Hmm. We subsequently then went to a site that Dan had uh, mapped in around San Jose, California, a wine grape vineyard, a high-end wine grape vineyard. And we asked that grower if he would be willing to harvest some fruit from zones that we predetermined based on our four characteristics would be high versus low fruit quality. What we found was that in fact, the zones that we had predicted would have higher quality versus those with lower quality were in fact validated our suspicions. I retired from the university and became more involved in the work that Dan was doing. And ultimately we're able to carry this whole concept of trying to do it right the first time mm -hmm. to some people that we worked with who were planting vineyards and had the opportunity to more than once uh, with Dan's, with the soil analysis that we were doing, plus uh, my insights as a plant physiologist and understanding wine grape cultivars, rootstocks, uh, what the industry was looking for in terms of quality characteristics and how to manipulate or manage, let's call it, water and nutrients and in conjunction with soil characteristics so that we could then achieve uh, the quality characteristics the first time without making too many big mistakes. And um, was very pleased that in those situations where we did the work and the, and the grower owner agreed to follow our recommendations, they got an ROI on their investment in less than a year. We were able to get the vines on the wire in the first year, which normally takes two years. And that alone got them a return on their investment. So again, another successful event. Right. And for those, for those that don't know, Dan, Dan Rooney is the CEO and founder for Landscan, which is the company that, that I believe was formed off the back of that collective research. Give us a sense of the different data layers that you're using and how you're piecing all of these different components together to create um, a value proposition for somebody trying to understand what's below the ground. Uh, no small task. For sure. Uh, <laughs> um, as we've said up to this particular point, any piece of property you go to that is in production, uh, if you look at it using Google Earth, uh, uh, fixed wing airplane images that are captured by the grower or drones, it's rare. I mean, incredibly rare when you look at a piece of property and you cannot see variability across the field. Now, in some cases, it takes an experienced eye looking at those images to detect those variability. It's minor changes in canopy size, minor mm -hmm. changes in canopy color. Um, those things are indicators, however, uh, as we've already determined that variability below ground. And so Landscan's approach is to in fact, uh, start utilizing by utilizing remote images. And uh, for the most part, uh, we can use 
satellite imagery to a, a very broad scale, but it's, it's super broad. A single pixel for, I think some of the best satellite imagery now is, is about five meters. So each pixel represents 15 feet by 15 feet. Mm -hmm. Well, a, a, a mature almond tree or um, that includes many grapevines uh, in a 15 by, by 15 foot zone. Right. So we, we prefer something a little higher resolution. And the LandScan resolution at this particular point is about for our color imagery. And, and we've got about eight different wavelengths that we're, we're capturing, but that color imagery is about two centimeters resolution. Okay. Uh, which gives us then an opportunity to look at even portions of an individual plant. Mm -hmm. And when we look at that and we, we recognize the variability across the field, that gives us a first insight about how we should go about sampling the soil characteristics. The next step is to, in fact, utilize um, an electrical conductivity of the soil. Ultimately, then, uh, we use this combined information to, in fact, target zones where the um, soil probe is utilized to, in fact, collect uh, very detailed information using, as you said, uh, spectrometry as well as imagery in the soils themselves, which is not done very often, um, and, and measures of things that include soil texture, soil compaction, uh, and the ability to detect changes in layers of the soil as it, uh, the probe moves through that. All of these things have an influence on the root distribution, mm -hmm. obviously on water holding and nutrient holding characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so once we then accumulated this uh, large amount of data, I mean, uh, over 64 different soil properties. And I, I know a lot of farmers and soil scientists and many of them don't even recognize that we have 64 different soil properties to begin with. And that uh, what we're doing now is we're trying to parse out those soil properties to give us the best insight we can get in terms of how soil variability is affecting plant performance. You've described a variety of different data layers and those data layers use many different sensors to collect that data. How, are, how is LandScan dealing with the inter interoperability challenge of bringing all those layers in different forms from, I assume, different third-party providers? Maybe you have your own proprietary sensors, but I'm assuming the former. How are you dealing with all of that interoperability challenge? Well, first of all, most of the uh, sensors, and that includes our interpretation of remote imagery, as well as the sensors that we are utilizing in our soil probe, are all mm -hmm. predominantly being built by our engineers at LandScan. Okay. So we have we have specialists who are associated with remote image um, interpretation. Okay. And we're on a a pretty steep learning curve um, because the number of wavelengths that we're collecting gives us an opportunity to do some hyperspectral work. Correct. But for the time being, we are focusing on some of the more visual um, wavelengths right now. Okay. Um, but we have the engineers and, and the experts to help us 
continue to evolve to a level that is going to be greater than what, where we are today. And that's what 2022 and beyond mm -hmm. in LandScan are all about. The same situation can be said for our soil probe. Um, the, many of the sensors there are, are should I say many or all, are, are being uh, crafted by our engineers. And so that we have a lot of um, very fundamental technology that we're bringing from other areas in terms of spectroscopy. We know that for instance, near infrared spectroscopy is, is something we like, somebody else has used it, but we now have to engineer it into our probe. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the sort of thing that, that we're doing. And, and um, for the time being, suffice it to say that LandScan is not done developing those capabilities yet. Maybe as, as one final question, Bob, is there anything that I'm not asking you that I should be? <laughs> um, oh, there's some of that stuff I don't want to talk about anyway. So the, <laughs> I suppose, I suppose I, you said something just a, a few seconds ago that, that caused me to reflect back on my role as a, as a teacher both for my own kids, but also grandkids and for my students while I was at both institutions. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is most rewarding for any of us, I have not yet found a single individual when I ask them this question or propose this situation that, that they didn't agree with me. One of the most rewarding things that we ever get to do in our lives is to solve a problem all by ourselves. If you, and I used, to, I used to be use the analogy for our students. If you had um, only a screwdriver and your bicycle broke, how could you fix your bicycle? If all you had was a screwdriver, the probability is pretty low. And what I tried to get across to the students was getting an education and learning how to use that education. Make sure you understand the information that you are getting in the classroom. Because then you can put it to work. If all you have done is memorize the information to get by the exam that you're going to face, you haven't put a tool in your toolbox. And I encourage my kids, my grandkids, and my students to put as many tools in their toolbox as they possibly could. And if there's anything that I can help my fellow veterans who might view this is take the opportunity to use the GI Bill to put tools in your toolbox because that will serve you well. Uh, because I, every employer that I've ever talked to what they really want is somebody who can solve problems. If it's just putting a nut on a bolt, we've got machines that can do that. So you haven't asked me about that specifically, but I think that's something important that I've learned over the years that if I can share it with other people, it's worthwhile. That's such a fantastic way to wrap it up, Bob, that these sort of, in some ways, intangible skills that the veteran garners from their years of service become in and of themselves additional tools 
that are yes. somewhat difficult to teach. Now, that does not absolve the veteran from the responsibility to get educated if they're trying to move into a profession that requires formal education. But that is, I think, to say that there's a lot that they bring that in a lot of instances is undervalued. I would agree 100%. I think sometimes uh, I, I have a grandson who, who spent four years in the Marine Corps following in both my footsteps, so to speak, but also his, his grandfather on his mother's side footsteps. Good man. And he, 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 at, at, at the end of the four years, um, I encouraged him to take an assessment of what he had learned and to evaluate what his toolbox looked like mm -hmm. and encouraged him to, to continue to put tools in his toolbox. And he's done that. He's, he's made some choices. I think that um, he's now changed his mind, but during that process, he has put more tools in his toolbox, which I think are, are serving him well. Um, and I, I hope that young veterans who might see this recognize that they need to take an assessment of their toolbox and what they have uh, from their military service, but also from their previous life experiences. And to be sure to appreciate what those tools in the toolbox are worth. To me, it feels like Bob spent his entire academic and professional career following a path that's led him to exactly where he is now, providing more information to help make better decisions the first time. He grew up on a farm. His Marine Corps career stationed him in places where he began to see the importance of environmental stewardship. And finally, his entire research career centered on proving that soil variability has a direct effect on crop quality. Landscan is using what looks like a sequential and layered approach to provide better insight into soil variability. These data layers in and of themselves, aerial imagery, EC maps, geological insights, soil sampling, spectroscopy, these are not new, but they're collecting them with specifically engineered sensors and layering the data together in a way that can hopefully tell the grower or the advisor what they should do with all this information. Finally, I thought Bob's closing remarks aimed at veterans putting more tools in their toolbox was spot on. It's not about simply collecting information. It's about collecting and applying that information in a way that can help you and others solve problems. As Bob notes, one of the most rewarding things we can do with our lives is to solve problems by ourselves. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desau, and until next time, stay frosty. Thank you.